In 2016, the World Economic Forum released a report aimed at quantifying and tracking the progress being made on the global gender gap. Their conclusions weren't pretty. It would have been discouraging to learn that the gap isn't likely to close in our lifetimes. It may have been disheartening to learn that it isn't likely to close in our children's lifetimes. But how about our grandchildren's grandchildren? That's right, according to their data, if we continue on our current track, the global gender gap won't completely close until the year 2186, my 200th birthday. But of course the key phrase there is, if we continue on our current track. And if you're paying attention on January 21st of this year, you couldn't help but notice that there are a heck of a lot of people determined to speed things up. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and in this week's roundtable, we'll be talking about the Women's March, the Women's Movement, and how you capture the spirit of historic protest and turn it into real policy action. Our roundtable includes HKS Assistant Professor Leah wright Rigur, an historian who teaches about race, civil rights, and political revolutions in the United States, Victoria Budson, who's founder and executive director of the Kennedy School's Women in Public Policy program, and HKS adjunct lecturer Tim McCarthy, director of the Culture, Change, and Social Justice Initiatives at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. So, uh, Victoria, I'd like to start with you. Uh, Judging by the sheer numbers, it seems clear that the Women's March resonated with people. Um, But I'm curious to get your take on why. Was it uh, something specific by way of a policy change, or was it something larger? When we're looking across the United States and seeing social action at this point in time and the coalescing of all of this energy and action where people are so invested, they didn't just post on Facebook or just go to vote or just turn to a friend or colleague and talk about it. They literally did something which is unusual. They literally put down their computer, their regular day priorities, got out of their house, and all across the United States, from the maps that I've seen in every single state, literally all red states, all blue states, women came together and men and others to literally come out and show that what was going on wasn't okay, that they are moved to action, and that they wanted to do that in a way that they were with other people. And when we see that type of mobilization taking place, it's important to understand within historical context, we have identified that there are times when it isn't enough just to say how you feel. Now, here in the United States, we've never been at a, at a time or space where we had more political voice available to us without leaving our houses. Mm-hmm. But here, we saw people saying, in addition to that, I'm going to literally stand shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, footstep with footstep with women who I know and women who I don't know and feel that I am a part of something. Mm. Now then map onto that, that women are the largest number of people registered to vote in the United States. We are also the majority who then go out and vote. Often people talk about women as a minority group or an interest group. We are neither. Women are the majority of citizens elected, um, of citizens, of those who are participating in the electoral process as voters. And we are an incredible political force. 
And now you're seeing women choosing to self-identify with the marker of women. Most of the time, women go and vote, and they'll have a number of key issues, and economic issues are right at the forefront. But you're seeing women choosing to identify as women, which is a sea change. I mean, that is a powerful tool that we haven't seen at this level of um, social action in the streets in more than a decade. This is a pretty serious and robust um, movement, and we're going to see lots of actions from it. But I'll, I'll leave it there for now and look forward to hearing from my colleagues. Uh, Leah Wright Rigger, um, this this march happened just the day after Donald Trump's inauguration. Was this just a liberal backlash to Trump's inauguration, or was it something that was really uh, more applicable to a larger swath of of the United States? So I actually think it was it was much bigger um, than Trump's inauguration, and in fact, we see the um, idea for the women's march emerge in the days following the 2016 election. Um, and I think part of part of what uh, part of what happens is that people are really looking for a way to speak to both how they're feeling, right, um, but also the reality of what um, a Trump presidency may mean. Um, so for many women, including women who have never been involved in politics or in mobile, political mobilization, this gives them an avenue to channel kind of um, that frustration, um, that, that energy, um, that reaction or that response um, to that November moment. Um, and so in that way, I think um, we can think of the march as something that is productive. And it actually, I think, multiplies quite, quite quickly in the days following the election into something um, quite big and quite exceptional um, that is really about tackling uh, women's issues, um, uh, which extend beyond kind of gender, but also um, thinking about ideas of choice, thinking about ideas of, of agency, um, and thinking about how women can have um, a strong political voice. The interesting thing to me, too, is that for many um, of the women who are involved in the march, um, it becomes something bigger than a reaction to, say, Donald Trump's mm -hmm. election. And so it becomes, and we see this in a number of the speeches, we see this in a number of the participants, um, and I'll tell a, a story a little bit later on about uh, some of the participants, but we see this in people who are jumping into um, the march and into kind of mobilization in new and interesting um, ways. Um, that the organizers choose to time it with the inauguration is not a mistake. That's, that's a very deliberate statement. But that millions of women across the world and um, million, uh, uh, millions of women in this country alone participate um, isn't necessarily um, just because Donald Trump is being inaugurated uh, the day before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tim McCarthy, you're a veteran of several, maybe more than several, protests uh, <laughs> movements in the past, uh, including the fight for LGBT rights. Um, in your prior appearance on this podcast, mm -hmm. uh, you you compared kind of the Occupy movement to the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder how you see this Women's March movement in that context. Yeah, well, one of the things that I think we're experiencing right now, which speaks to the the broader and larger context that both Leah and Victoria were, were, were mentioning and illustrating, is that we're living through a, a sustained movement moment 
right now in the United States, where you have certainly the earlier expressions of this with the Tea Party and the Occupy movement emerging nearly simultaneously at a particular uh, moment during the Obama presidency, which significantly both of those movements, um, although they've had different, they had different aspirations, they had different strategies, they've had different impacts, uh, were movements that have significantly reshaped the political discourse and the political landscape of our times and the way that we talk about um, representation politically, the way we talk about economic inequality, the way we talk about the relationship between the people and the government, uh, all of those things, the way we talk about the 1%, the 99%, the 47%, all the percentages that we uh, that have now become part of our uh, common uh, political language. Uh, all of that has been shaped by these, these two powerful movements. And they, you know, emerged within the context of an Obama presidency, which was historic. They emerged within the context of a Great Recession, and the, uh, which was a kind of culmination of growing economic inequality and upward redistribution of wealth that's been accelerating, both of which have been accelerating over the last generation or so. But in addition to that landscape, which we talked about the last time I was on this podcast, we have all these other movements that have emerged. We have the Black Lives Matter movement that has emerged out of the Ferguson moment and the Trayvon Martin uh, murder, which. Uh, the fifth anniversary of which was this week. We have the, um, the, 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 a particular inflection point in the modern LGBTQ movement, which has seen so much progress in an accelerated way and is a, one of the most powerful and well-organized and well-resourced movements that we have in the United States right now. We have the Dream Defenders and the Immigrant Rights Movement, the undocumented uh, mobilization among undocumented folks right now. We have Standing Rock and folks who are, who are protesting uh, uh, pipe line development for and, and, and advocating for the human right to water and, and, and so forth. So we have a, a whole constellation of different groups for different reasons, with different histories and sometimes different political aspirations and agendas, all mobilized and agitated, not just in forms of resistance, although that's certainly there, but also articulating a, a vision for what the country needs to be. And I think the Women's March as a mobilization, as a kind of moment within this larger movement moment, um, speaks to the energies that are out there in the culture that are energies of resistance, but also energies of aspiration and reimagining what the nation can be. And one of the things about the Women's March that I found to be so powerful, and I was at the march in D.C., um, was the, the, the how just how many different kinds of people were there and how many different kinds of people were at women's marches across the country and even throughout the world on that day. And for me, that represents an, an, a, you know, a possibility for an organizing, a sustainable organizing culture to emerge that brings together these different movements, these different constituencies, these different peoples and communities into a larger um, you know, vanguard, of not just of resistance, but of, but of a, a more just and progressive and inclusive and equitable world. I'd like to open this up to everyone. Um, it seems like uh, the women's movement, in much the same way that uh, several uh, protest movements over the last f several years, I guess, um, it seems to share a lot in common in by way of the fact that it doesn't necessarily have uh, specific policy prescriptions that are being fought, uh, that are being asked for. Um, and I want to ask, you know, it. What does that mean? I mean, what is the change that uh, that we hope to see come out of this? 
You know, what's really fascinating is to look at the women's movement across time. One of the things about the women's movement is gains of the movement end up being absorbed into culture in a way that people don't even associate them with the movement anymore. If you walk into any room across America and you ask people, you know, are you a feminist, every woman's hand isn't going to go up, regardless of race, class, demographic, region. But if you say in that same room, how many of you have a credit card in your wallet or hope to have one at some point and want access to credit, access to capital, the ability to open a bank account, they want to sign their own name Mm -hmm. on purchasing a home, every hand will go up. Each of those items that I just mentioned is a gain that came from the women's movement. And if you're speaking in a room where women are older than 60, all of them will remember when they couldn't sign a loan themselves. Similarly, When we look at what are the gains which are wanted, and though what I would say is not that the movement lacks um, a cohesive agenda, but the women's movement uh, and its agenda are intersectional, that what it means, um, we all say United States, as if we were saying American, it was one thing, Mm -hmm. instead of the United States. People live really different lives throughout America Mm -hmm. based on race, based on class, based on religion, based on economic opportunity, based on immigrant status. And one of the things which the movement, you know, continues to try to get better on, and certainly Mm -hmm. we've seen evidence that we are getting better on it and still have a long way to go, is making sure that every woman feels a sense of ownership and agency in the creation of that movement and the execution of goals. Um, Highlights of the policy agenda looking at paid leave, looking at pay equity. Uh, Overwhelmingly, Americans all over the United States support having a system of paid leave. Mm -hmm. We're the only industrialized country in the world where there is no statutory requirement of paid leave of any kind. Uh, And one of the other things which is happening is we're still having gains in the women's movement. And strangely, they're rarely talked about. It took 11 months from the point at which uh, one of our Harvard students here worked with legislators on Capitol Hill to file the Sexual Assault Victims Bill of Rights, from filing that bill to getting it passed unanimously in a divided House and Senate. So what we're seeing is we have come to a place where finally women's issues and rights are being looked at beyond the partisan landscape, beyond progressive or liberal to understand that these are the needs and the rights of people of this country, unassailably so. So even in this time period of such divisions, we are seeing that the agenda, um, which is through the energy of this movement and the mm-hmm. real changing of social understanding, uh, is making serious gains. Mm. So, so what I'll say here, too, is that I think it's uh, – Victoria brought up a really um, important point, which is that um, – the movement made uh, these women's marches and the organizers around these women's and mobilizers made really important adjustments based on an yeah. intersectional model, analytical model, or framework. Um, and so when we talk about intersectionality, essentially what we're, we're suggesting is that people have different parts of their identities, right? So they, they have uh, these intersecting parts of their identities, whether it be race, class, gender, sexual orientation, what have you, and that these intersecting um, identities often collide in 
intersect and overlap to produce or reproduce marginalization, inequality, um, kind of et cetera, et cetera. So really, intersectionality, this intersectional approach, is an analytical lens for understanding um, um, inequality, marginalization. Um, and it comes, it, it, it really emerges. I mean, it's a, it's a long-standing idea, um, uh, really, for generations. But um, Kimberly Crenshaw coins the term as a way for understanding why black women, in particular, are always in the shadows. Right? Yeah. And so their kind of unique set of circumstances that continue to be omitted from these various movements and from these various agendas. So one of the things that we see with the Women's March very quickly is that there is a pushback um, uh, after a uh, call to march, in part because black women have been marching uh, for, for generations now, right? Um, there's a march in the 1990 called the Million Women's March. Yeah. Um, so we see that there's a, a real concerted effort to incorporate kind of um, the perspective of women of color and to really make women of color um, the face of the movement as well, um, but also to incorporate an agenda that really speaks to these various identities mm -hmm. that people are bringing to the table in an effort, as Victoria and as Tim said, to really address, begin to address, and um, also begin to kind of compile an agenda um, that speaks to these issues that are often excluded from um, uh, even women's movements. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. one group uh, that, well, of course, women are not a monolith, obviously. Um, one group that, uh, you know, it was reported felt a little bit excluded from this movement were conservative women. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, white women voted uh, for Donald Trump. Um, you know, uh, they uh, there's a large percentage of women who are pro-life and not the majority, but still a healthy uh, population. Um do they feel included in this movement? Are there places where uh, this movement can uh, yield results for them? Or uh, does someone who's pro-life kind of need to take their ball and go home? Mm. I mean, I mean <laughs> I'm probably least well-equipped to talk about uh, white conservative women. The only thing I have in common with them is that I'm white. Uh, but... <laughs> Let me just say that, you know, it, it, you, it, you made an interesting category. You said conservative women and then you said white women and then you said pro-life. Right? So you went, from, you went from an ideological disposition to a, to a, a, a racial identity to a, a policy position. And so I think that's really interesting because it, it actually speaks to one of the things that I think often undermines movements and which can really undermine movements. If we are purist in any way, right, that uh, whether it's, we're talking about identity or we're talking about ideology or we're talking about policy, um, chances are we're not going to play well with others. We're only going to play well with the people who agree with us or who look like us or who have the same kind of worldview or experience that we do. And movements by definition have to be intersectional and coalitional. The most successful movements throughout American history have been intersectional and coalitional. And they've been movements that have come together across lines of race, across lines of class, across lines of gender, across lines of sexuality, religion, etc., uh, to build 
some kind of countervailing force that's sustainable that can challenge and alter the dynamics of power and the hierarchies that are pre-existing. And so, you know, movements often fail because they fail to become coalitional and intersectional. So if you come to the Women's March, if you're a conservative white woman who voted for Donald Trump, and white women did vote for Donald Trump, 53%, which was shocking to me, and against every type of uh, prediction that I gave. I thought that women who, uh, as Victoria mentioned, are the only minority that are a majority electorally, right? And what I mean by the only people who are, who are routinely the victims of system, systematic and systemic discrimination and the downside of inequality, uh, who are electorally powerful in that way, in a majoritarian sense. Um, but if you're someone who comes to the women's movement or the women's march with a kind of purity around abortion as an issue and say, I can't participate if there are, if there's a majority consensus within the speakers or within the planners or within the movement around a pro-choice agenda or reproductive justice agenda, um, then I think it's time to maybe broaden out your agenda and say, look, we're not going to agree on this, but we can agree on pay equity. We can agree on, on paid leave. We can agree that women should be able to sign a loan for a home or for college or go to college um, and that there's enough common ground on contested terrain within a political culture that is full of conflict to be able to march with one's sisters without having to agree and be aligned in every, on every issue in every way. And so that's my feeling about the, the most successful movement people are those who have kind of, who are morally righteous, uh, but ideologically uh, uh, flexible enough to be able to, um, to, to, to accommodate all comers, right? And that's really hard to do. I'm not saying it's easy. It's very, very difficult. And we have lots, we have many more examples of movements that have faltered and failed because of the inability to do that than we do the other. Victoria, you're nodding along. Yeah. I imagine you have something to add. Well, Tim is absolutely correct in terms of the construction and how one organizes a movement. Um, and for better or worse in the United States, mm -hmm. there are so many gains still needed for women uh, that there are broad swaths of policy areas and arenas where women across all of our different facets and intersectionality can easily meet. Mm -hmm. And so building um, the fabric and cohesive connections that create very effective movements, um, overcoming differences in dialogue, perspective, language, um, situations of geography, you know, of uh, expendable resources for how we organize patterns in communities and so forth. Those are challenging. Mm -hmm. But actually finding common ground within policy is not challenging. Here in the United States, when we Often you'll hear people talk about the wage gap. I always talk about the wage gaps. And I always like yeah, right. our listeners to really imagine wherever it is that you pay your bills, whether that's sitting at your desk or sitting on your bed at the end of the evening when you're watching the news or taking out a checkbook at a dining room table. But compared to white male earnings, if you look at white women are making 81 cents on that dollar. Black men are making 74 cents on that dollar. Hispanic men are making 69 cents. Black women are making 67 cents. And Hispanic women are making 62 cents. Right. And imagine having 62 cents for every dollar and trying to pay your bills. So when we talk about can we get across these divides of intersectionality for a common agenda, the common agenda is very 
ripe. Um, and we can do that. Virtually all families across the United States want paid leave. All people struggle with how they will take care of children, how they will take care of elders, how they will take care of themselves if they're sick. Um, here in the United States, we have done a phenomenal job at breaking down barriers to entry. Um, we still struggle with providing people equal opportunities to move up in organizations. Um, we have all kinds of new tools um, designed here at the Kennedy School and elsewhere to really close those gaps and de-bias our institutions. But given the fact that we haven't yet been able to do that as a society, mm. it actually leaves a tremendous amount of ripe agenda to get over those barriers. Um, and though many people look at um, fractures in movements and point to the fractures, when we look at the number of people who participated from the breadth of communities that participated, mm -hmm. I think it's an extraordinary example of coming together. And since this is all within the context and backdrop of the election, I think it's also worth noting that the majority of registered voters who went and voted in the election, the popular vote did go to Hillary Clinton, and we saw co a cohesion there. Um, we had a woman who was a major party nominee for the first time. So two glass ceilings were broken. We just didn't break three. Uh, Leah, you've obviously studied social movements, political revolutions uh, in American history. Uh, when you look at um, things like civil rights, even the women's movement, oftentimes we've seen either legal or policy changes precede uh, popular acceptance. Uh, you know, Roe v. Wade happened at a time when uh, abortion was widely um, considered something that should be illegal. Um, things like the uh, in, in civil rights, uh, the Voting Rights Act happened at a time when um, many states did not want that kind of, uh, I guess, intrusion on their, uh, their, <laughs> their way of their life. Right yeah, that's a polite to, way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> their right to uh, discriminate, yeah. No. <laughs> um, History produces many euphemisms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> is this is this movement about creating social acceptance first? And if so, is that necessary to produce change? Or is it more important that we focus on the, the policy mm -hmm. solutions? So it's interesting. So I think part of what you're describing is the hearts and minds approach yeah. as, approach, as, as opposed to the legislative approach. Mm -hmm. um, and I always like to go back to that Martin Luther King, um, that great Martin Luther King quote to paraphrase where he says, I can't, you know, I can't change somebody's heart and mind, but I, I sure as hell can legislate his behavior. Right? Mm. And so I think that's an important discrepancy in part because there's there's research, including coming out of, of social science, that suggests that even after we, you may change some people's hearts and minds, they can reverse. That's right. And, um, so it is important to focus on the policy aspects of things as you are focusing on uh, the people part of things. Um, and so one of the things that, that I um, talk to my students a lot about is, yes, you need a public relations campaign, and yes, you need to do a lot of kind of convincing and talking to your neighbors and thinking about communities and things like that. But you also have to think about structures, and you also have to think about power. Um, and so the thing is, you're not going to change hierarchies and power and inequality by being nice to somebody or someone mm -hmm. being nice mm -hmm. to you. And in fact, we're seeing this play out in a number of different ways, including um, there have been a whole host of, of, um, of articles 
from uh, uh, people who voted for Donald Trump and are thinking about these things in, in theory or kind of abstract ways and are seeing them play out in their day-to-day lives, right, as the local restaurant manager gets deported or something like that or picked up and people say, well, wait, that's not, that's not what I meant. Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which people can still have these relationships and say, hey, he's a great guy or she's a great guy, but I'm still going to vote for this kind of mm-hmm. um, uh, figure that is going to reinforce these relationships of inequality. So I think this is why, um, uh, as we're thinking about something about the Women's March and organizing around the Women's March, it is incredibly important to think about what are the legislative implications of this, right? Um, and on, on the, mm-hmm. I think, on the um, attached to that, though, is how do we push through and how do we mobilize and organize around these various issues? So part of that means running good candidates right? and, and right. pushing or pushing candidates to support um, policies or the agenda that you have in mind. Um, and so I, th- I think that's really important in thinking about how to really how to kind of dismantle a lot of the things that, that people are rallying against, particularly in um, an mm-hmm. administration of uh, Donald Trump. Mm. Can I actually add, I add something? Because uh, because there is a there is a way in which the the art <laughs> or artlessness of policymaking runs up against a problem that is also a problem for movements. We were talking about intersectionality before. You can't walk down the hallway or into a classroom at the Kennedy School of Government without people talking about intersectionality because it's part of a framework of understanding and hopefully a principle of practice that we value here. I have been in a movement space in 20 years for social justice where people are 25 years. 1993, I think, was Kim Crenshaw uh, published the, the, the piece where she coined the term. Um, I haven't been in a movement space for social justice where people haven't invoked this idea in an, as an analytical framework, but also as a practice. And yet, I guarantee you that the vast majority of people who are in Congress or even in state houses across this country have any idea about what sectionality is, either as an analytical framework or as a practice of justice for one's life. And so what happens then when movements begin to make policy demands is that they then have to make compromises about what kinds of who is going to be included in those policies. And there are a whole number of examples of that. After the Civil War, there was, you know, the, this was an incredibly patriarchal and sexist society where the uh, the former abolitionists had to make compromises about who got the vote. And so all men were going to get the right to vote. Black men, and that was a huge advance and a revolution. But women, all women, were thrown under the bus of that revolution in order to get that particular policy passed or that particular law guaranteed. In the LGBT movement, we saw this in the struggle for an equal protection law, a, a, a um, a comprehensive federal bill guaranteeing equal protection for LGBT people when it became clear that the lawmakers were not sufficiently educated and enlightened around transgender issues in the trans community, our own sen- our own congressman, Barney Frank, said, you know what, we're going to have to leave them behind right now because we, in order to get this passed, we can't have trans inclusion. And, and, so, and, and you see this over and over and over again. And so what we have with the pay gap is you hear the figure 70 cents on a dollar. 70 cents is a collapsing of the nuances, the intersectional nuances that Victoria was talking about. And so we 
get in these policy debates about one figure that represents an entire experience, which is not unitary, right? It's much more diverse than that. And so we don't end up having conversations about women of color. We don't end up having conversations in policy arenas about immigrant women, about undocumented women. We don't end up having intersectional conversations that would take us not from a conversation about pay equity or inequality to conversations that intersect with debates about immigration, about about racism, about the impact of mass incarceration on families and wealth accumulation or the lack thereof. And so for me, I think we need to think about how these sort of analytical or theoretical frameworks that we use in places like the Kennedy School to train policymakers and politicians and activists and in activist spaces to pursue social justice, where the gap is, right? Who gets left behind when we get to the table to make policy? And, and, and you see that too. I mean, just one final example is the LGBT movement for marriage equality, right? Who are the people who are the plaintiffs in the major cases that have advanced gay rights in the United States? They are not queer people of color. They are not trans women of color. They are not leather daddies or dykes on bikes. These are not the people who walk out of the Supreme Court when gay rights and LGBT rights have been advancing. And so certain people get left out of representation, uh, both in terms of the cultural imagination and in terms of the political reality, uh, which then mean that the policies themselves are always or almost always reformist in nature rather than transformational in nature, which is why you need social movements. So does that suggest that, uh, you know, making progress requires that some people get left behind? You know, you, you win some rights for some folks and yes. others always, uh, That's there's always that downside? Yeah, whenever movements go into the mainstream, people get left behind. I think one of the ways that we've been able to enhance our ability of having policies which will provide an important step forward for all people is to have the protection be about the process and the institution as opposed to selecting who is protected. So if instead of saying we validate these particular people inside the line and exclude these people outside the line and instead turn to organizational design and things like gender policy nudges. And I'm going to give you an example. And then I'm going to say the thing which I think if one remembers nothing else of what I've said, it's the most important thing. I'll note. <laughs> We've remembered everything. <laughs> so the first thing is when we've been working on pay equity, for example, here in Massachusetts, over the last five years, in addition to the role I serve here at the Kennedy School, I've chaired the Commission on the Status of Women and Girls across the 351 cities and towns here. And when we designed a law on pay equity, meaning those who participated in this coalition outside our work as academics here at the Kennedy School, we looked at what are the impediments to all people getting a fair experience when wage and compensation are set. And one of the impediments is that people would tie a future wage to past wages. So often, mm. if one is a prospective employee, you go in for the interview and the person says, what were you making in your last job? And what you are making in your last job is going to be the sum total of experiences with all of what we heard Leah talk about and all of what we heard Tim talk about with the bias one experiences in society. 
So, and yeah. we know, for example, that millennials graduate to a wage gap if they're women. The second they get out the door with that degree, mm-hmm. they are getting a lesser wage than their male counterparts with the same degree and the same amount of experience. So by saying that here in Massachusetts, no employer can compel or ask a prospective employee to share a past wage, that you have to be able to make that offer. We don't define who is protected. We say that these are the norms of our society and how we treat each other. And when you have communities that are able to get the coalitions right, Mm -hmm. and when we look at the formation of that coalition here, it wasn't just the women's movement. It was women. It was the business sector with the Boston Chamber of Commerce. It was the mayor, Marty Walsh, and his team. It was the legislature. And the pay equity bill passed unanimously. Mm. So even in this time where we have real conflicts around ideology, we're getting more sophisticated in our tools to make policy that rather than deciding who is included and who is excluded, we can now look at what are the systems that we can tweak and nobody loses. So the business community was behind Mm. it. We had, you know, every single prospective employee is helped because if you want to share your past wage and you think it's a help, you can share it. But you as the employee get to choose. And I think often when we see the future of policymaking around women, it's going to be disassociated in some ways from what will only help women. And instead will be focused on the tools which can help every single individual, every caregiver, every family member, every worker, every employer. And those are kind of the future of how I think we're going to see movements do better because we won't be, in essence, bartering away the limited resources and social capital. And instead, we'll say, how do we design something that's good for all of us who are out there marching and is neutral or beneficial for everyone who's sitting in a position of authority? And how do we bring those teams together where it's a win-win, builds the economy, creates trust Mm -hmm. in organizations, improves worker loyalty? How do we get it right? And then the final thing that I'll note is there's only two things which give women, in my view, equality anywhere in the world. And everything else is an input or an output. And the first is statutory protection. Statutory protection is the right to own land, access to capital, the ability to vote, freedom of movement, bodily integrity, and so forth. And that is always footprints in sand. That is a game of vigilance, and the pendulum will swing, and it takes a movement. It takes all of the eyes and all of the efforts of citizens to watch and ensure and participate. And the second is the ability for every woman over the arc of her adult life to have the economic resources that she can sustain herself and her dependents, whether or not she exercises that right. If she cannot stand up and walk out of a situation Mm -hmm. and define her life for herself and her dependents, the chance that she will be free is greatly diminished. Mm -hmm. And when you saw the movements and the marches across the country, I really believe you saw women coming together who are invested in ensuring that all of the feelings within their multifaceted communities and identities translate both into policy and into economic stability, independence, and security. Politics is obviously the art of the possible. And uh, right now, um, you know, hearkening back to uh, Leah's 
point about um, policy, the uh, how essential policy is in making uh, s sustainable change. Um, right now, uh, the Trump administration obviously isn't the easiest to pin down on on policy positions, but. Uh, in general, it has. If there's any been any consistency, it's been that they're anti-regulation. Um, many of the things that we've spoken about in terms of the possibility, even if we put aside the uh, pro-life, pro-choice uh, uh, debate, um, many of the things that we've spoken about require regulation um, of of some kind, whether it be uh, you know paid leave or uh, pay equity, um, all of these things. Uh, how do we? push through, um, you know, progress when there is just a kind of a fundamental uh, disagreement on the ability of the government to regulate something like that. So, so one thing I'll say is that um, I think for most of the discussion we've been focused on on the very top, when in fact, and maybe this is to Victoria, to your point, um, that a lot of these battles are going to be happening at the bottom. Yeah. Um, so not just grassroots and organization and things like that, um, but all politics is local politics, right? Um, and so when we actually look at the, the the landscape of the last eight years, we've seen that, you know, um, to Tim's earlier point, that the Tea Party has been fighting many of these battles on um, the local landscape, right? In municipal mm -hmm. um, areas, in uh, elections, in uh, legislative elections, right? So looking at uh, gubernatorial um, kind of contest. Um, and so there's a real opportunity there, I think, particularly as people are looking for ways to get involved and to translate mobilization into organization and then translate that into um, initiatives and policy agendas to take that and uh, put it to work in their towns and in their communities. Um, we've seen some of this, I think, even before kind of the, the um, ons uh, onset of the, the women's movement um, through some of these Black Lives Matter initiatives. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of people have, I think, focused on the kind of um, either the, the um, uh, either the spectacular displays um, by Black Lives Matters protests or mobilization or kind of, you know, um, high, uh, highway takeovers. But in fact, these various organizations have actually been putting forward policy agendas for quite some time now. Um, in the case of Chicago, mm -hmm. right, um, the initiative to oust um, uh, the DA, the Cook County DA, is actually kind of um, pushed into kind of mobilization effects and organization effects, um, not only by Black Lives Matter activists, but by organizations like BYP 100 um, or by um, long-standing um, but uh, but still young <laughs> people who are active in um, state and local politics mm -hmm. and they put together an initiative that puts together talent resources and time um, in order to elect a DA that um, reflects their their policy agenda, um, particularly around issues of um, mass incarceration and police brutality. So there is a model, and I think this is one way mm -hmm. to say, all right, we've got this guy in the White House at the federal level, but really maybe the story is this kind of 50-state strategy and this local yeah. and municipal battle. Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that that, you know, especially for people who are of a more liberal or progressive orientation in the next two to four years, perhaps more, 
um, are not going to be welcome years at the federal level. We're no longer at that place unless you're talking about you know, potentially the right Supreme Court case. But, um, you know, we're just not in that landscape. And, and as much as I think it's really important that we take to the streets, as we see people doing in droves, literally all the time, uh, every weekend, every week. Um, I was with a couple of my uh, friends recently, and we were talking about how, you know, uh, March is the new brunch. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was a bunch of gay folks. Um, we're very witty. I've heard that uh, too. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> March is the new brunch. Um, and p- protest is the new pastime. But I think as much as we need to take to the streets, which we're doing, I think we also need to take to the states, right, and, and the local level. And, and I think that there are, you know, Leah talked about the Black Lives Matter organizing that's been done beneath the radar screen. I mean, so often with the long black freedom movement, there's been so much kind of media attention on the spectacular moments, often linked to some kind of explosion of violence that then gets doubled back into a discourse of criminality to discriminate against black people and justify the the rollbacks of freedom. And that's been true since slave rebellions. Um, But the fact of the matter is there are examples throughout history within the black freedom struggle. I mean, the anti-slavery societies of free black communities in the North and the early Republic and throughout the antebellum period who were organizing school freedom schools and literary societies and the African Methodist Episcopal churches and so forth, anti-slavery societies, um, all of these ways in which black abolitionists and white abolitionists came together, men and women, to do that work. The women's movement itself has a you know a hundred-year history of, of a suffrage movement, the suffrage campaign, or you know, 70-year history of a suffrage campaign that went state by state by state. The LGBT movement, the marriage equality movement went state by state by state, passing legislation in state houses where there were uh, opportunities to do so and taking it to the courts when there weren't opportunities to go through the legislative channel. And so as much as there are these hearts and minds campaigns, right, change the culture, uh, there are also these legal and legislative campaigns, which are not themselves always the same. Sometimes you get if the court, if you can't get the legislature, you got to go to court. If you can't go to court, try to get it in the legislature. And these are all the kind of dynamic dynamics of movements that are local, that are municipal, that are at the state level, and I think that that's the that's the place we're in. Certainly, as as progressives or liberals, um, the indivisible movement, right? The 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 former congressional staffers who have put together a whole series of strategies and tactics for um, for a grassroots, local, and state kind of campaign that's modeled on the impact of the Tea Party, which ultimately did have a huge impact uh, federally, but initially they were working at the grassroots level. And so, you know, we have lots of examples examples of work that's worked on the left and the right and everywhere in between from all of these various movements, whether you're talking about the Tea Party, Black Lives Matter, the abolitionists, the suffragists, the LGBT movement, history is is overflowing with best practices. (laughs) Uh, This podcast is going to be published on International <coughs> Women's Day. Um, and that's a we're recording about a week ahead of time. Um, so who knows what's going to happen between now and then. But uh, <laughs> uh, one of the follow-ups to the Women's March is supposed to happen on International Women's Day, which is a general strike, a women's striking. Um, it, of course, uh, it was planned before this, but we've already seen this in, uh, for immigrants, uh, which happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'm wondering how you all think about um, both that idea as a, you know, is is it a good way of furthering the cause? Um, and also, uh, is is that the necessary next step? Do you do are there other things that we need to uh, that that people need to be focused on, not just the strike or the going into the streets? 
I think when we're looking at the outcomes of a march, what you're really seeing is that there's going to be hundreds of thousands and millions of actions which will come from that momentum and that it's really a constellation or the building of a mosaic which then fills out the whole picture Mm -hmm. and it's really a continuum that goes from everything from sitting and watching what's taking place and sighing to all the way to executive orders and actions and shifts on supreme courts and definition of law and policy and that each and every action has a very valid and important role to play Sometimes when we read in the paper, you know, they'll say, well, you know, this march didn't do anything. And I always think if only they had talked with Tim McCarthy and could understand the role and place and structure within our vibrant democracy of the many different types of political actions that we take and that a march is not the policymaking. Mm -hmm. And that people who do policymaking may also march, but they aren't the same thing and they aren't supposed to be the same thing. Right. And that there are many different roles to play. And part of what we do is this collective action. So when you say, is the strike the right next thing? There will be tens of thousands seen and reported on and experienced and not reported on actions which will take place. And in my view, you know, almost all of them are the right thing. And it's just a matter of holding on to that through line that at the end of the day, all of these actions help build that tidal wave and momentum to really redefine the landscape around what is statutorily impacted and about women's economic security. Mm -hmm. And we do both of those things well. Um, What America looks like is going to be very different ahead. By 2040, every major city in the United States will be majority-minority. Most major cities already are or well on their way. When we think about how we communicate, with whom we communicate, who we think of as valid. Um, Largest purchasing power will soon shift to Latina women in the United States. Mm -hmm. So how we view women in this movement, you know, is really the the tip of the iceberg. And what we see below that surface is what's to come. I think we are going to have the needs of women and girls in the United States break through and surpass ideology. I think we're beginning to see that with some of the examples I mentioned. Mm. And you're going to see all policymakers on both sides of the aisle and in multi-parties if we get to that place, focused on understanding that you cannot cede the needs of women to one party or another, to conservative or progressive, that the needs of women will be substantial and important all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've run out of time, unfortunately. I could go on for uh, a lot longer than this. Um, but uh, before we close out, I wanted to ask all of you, um, I'm sure that in your individual areas of research, uh, individual areas of practice, you uh, know of some resources that uh, people can look into for more information, to learn more about both the, w- the movement, the policy, et cetera. I wonder if, uh, if you would like to uh, mention any of them. So uh, the Women in Public Policy website, if you just Google Women in Public Policy, you'll have all kinds of links at your disposal from our Gender Action Portal, which shows summaries of the best evidence-based research done with a focus in the U.S. and across the globe. 
It's all in easy terms, so it's summarized in layperson terms. If you are so inclined to read the 80, 100-page policy paper, you can click that link. Um, we have videos which are great to share with people about what are some easy things that you or your organization can do to help debias your environment. Um, and then I would encourage you to Google any topic or issue of concern to you and to actually follow it and to find out who is my state legislator, who is my congressperson, and literally track a couple issues because what you'll find is no matter who you are or what your vantage point is, you are an expert in your own life and on how you experience the policies in the United States. And your view is just as valid as ours who you heard from today. And enjoy that and talk out on the issues which are important to you. So I, I'm going to put in a plug for um, watching the, the uh, broadcast of the forum that the Kennedy Schools have, uh, is having um, on um, women in resistance and um, women's issues. Um, so please take a look at that. I can't um, second enough Victoria's comment uh, about the Women in Public Policy School uh, program here at the Kennedy School as a resource. Um, but also I think it's, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about is how these protests are a way of mobilizing and a way for people to kind of get their feet wet, right? To, to jump into the political arena. So with that in mind, um, I would encourage people to really think about a, a couple of different resources, including um, BYP 100, mm -hmm. um, the Gen Forward surveys, which are incredible um, data resources. Um, and then also look at the policy initiatives of groups like We the Protesters or Black Lives Matter Incorporated. Um, regardless of, of how you may feel about them as organizations, they have done a tremendous amount of work um, in terms of equality um, and um, policy. And then the last group that I'll mention, because they have a really just uh, a really phenomenal um, uh, approach and strategy, is Color of Change. Yeah. Um, and they are fantastic. They are doing really exciting things in terms of um, civil rights and organizing and, pro um, uh, and organizing and, and legislative change. Um, and from doing it from the perspective, too, of a, a what they call a 21st century civil rights movement. So. Yeah, I mean, I would co-sign on all of those suggestions. I mean, one of the things, and I'll take it in a slightly different direction, because I actually think this is a, a moment where history matters <laughs> as much as it ever has before. Yes. And I have, I know, Lee and I are both historians, so we're, <laughs> we, uh, we, 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 we double down on that. But I mean, and I've been reading, rereading a lot of history. I mean, I've reread Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, which, of course, is a radical history of the United States, but it's got a lot of information in it. I've been rereading um, histories of reconstruction. I've been looking at you know histories of Japanese internment camps. I've been reading histories of the Cold War and Cuba and, and, and the McCarthy era, different McCarthy. Uh, and uh, you know, <laughs> no I, relation. I, I actually went back and not to this is a shameless plug, but I, I co-edited the first ever documentary history of American radicalism called The Radical Reader, and I've been rereading a lot of those documents. In that, there are manifestos and speeches and literary works and all sorts of things. And I've been I've been um, trying to remind myself of those best practices that come from the history of social movements that Lee and I both studied and that we, we all know about and um, in some way. But one of the things that I feel we, uh, we were, were historically illiterate in the United States. I mean, you know, most American-born citizens, native-born citizens of the United States, couldn't pass a citizenship test that most mm -hmm. of our immigrant brothers and sisters are studying for or would like to study for. 
And that's a tragedy. That is a, an American tragedy of profound proportions. And so I would say, in addition to all these resources, the Indivisible Guide and all of these things that we've mentioned, uh, that we start reading and rereading history and that we go back to the Constitution and go back to the Declaration of Independence and go back to the Federalist Papers and go back to all of that stuff. If we're going to call ourselves originalists, then let's get at it. And, and one of the things that has been buoying me in these times is that you know, I've gone back and I've reread the First Amendment about once a week since the election. And the First Amendment gives us the right to five freedoms, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of petition, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion. And that's a radical part of our otherwise fairly conservative constitution. And it gives us five options for the work we need to do in the world right now. And Donald Trump, I guarantee you, and his people don't have enough energy or initiative to be fighting on all five of those fronts. So if they come for press and they come for assembly, petition, speak, pray. When they come for prayer and they come for speech, publish, petition, assemble. And we have these options available to us and we need to remind ourselves um, that American history as contested and as, as, as complex as it is, uh, full of paradoxes of progress and all sorts of prejudice and discrimination is also a history that has been animated by radicalism and by protest and by all of the things we've been discussing today. Uh, and so these marches are just the 21st century manifestations of a long history that dates back to the birth of the nation, if not before the birth of the nation. We wouldn't have we wouldn't be here if it weren't for protest. Well, we will have links to all of those resources in the show notes. Uh, I want to thank all of you so much for coming and being part of this. I think it was a fantastic discussion. Yeah, thank really, you. Really Matt. appreciate it. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader. Natalie Montana is our guest wrangler. Sarah Abrams, our sage advisor, and Becky Wickle, our digital guru. Send us your comments and questions to policycast at hcast.harvard.edu or on Twitter at PolicyCast and subscribe on iTunes and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.